you know, I've spent a fair amount of time studying these ancient teachings of the Buddha. And the more I study them, the more I think that what he's teaching is very simple. However, if he had presented it simply in his times, no one would have listened to him. So he added great work, all kinds of wonderful words and superlatives for it, like the noble truths, the truths. I mean, those are big words. You know, some of you came because the title of this day long was Noble Truths. <laughs> great things. But, uh, in, you know, when you get down to them, I, the more I see them, they're actually at their heart something very simple, matter of fact, kind of obvious. Like you take your hand off the hot stove is obvious. You don't step down on the, with your bare foot on the nail. It's that kind of obviousness. So the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth truth, has two ways of being understood. One is that it's prescriptive, and the other is that it's descriptive. It's descriptive for how someone on this path of the Dharma will behave. Uh, it's not necessarily prescriptive for how they should practice and how what they should do. It's simply what they will do. So it's descriptive for people who have some degree of awakening. If you want to, if you ever wondered what an awakened person is like, the Eightfold Path is one answer. The Eightfold Path is also prescriptive in that in order to mature along this path, living according to these Eightfold Path is a way to do it. And what's kind of very nice is that the, the, the goal of becoming the Eightfold Path, the means to attain that contains part of the goal. The means is to live by the Eightfold Path the best you can. And when you're doing that, you're partaking a little bit in what the goal is. There's a harmony between the means and the goal. And I think that's quite something. If the goal is to be non-reactive, the cessation, freedom from all reactivity, the path there is to begin being non-reactive. Maybe it begins with being non-reactive towards your reactivity. So the Eightfold Path as prescriptive, as in harmony with the goal. So we'll do this next uh, meditation for, for 20 minutes. And this idea that the, that the goal is found in the means, that the way you practice, the way you do meditation even, is there some way you can do it that you're already sharing in the goal? the goal of non-reactivity, non-clinging, non-grasping, non-craving. How would you practice with the Eightfold Path while you're meditating so that you're sharing in the life of someone who's awakened, touching some of it, partaking in some of it. What would, what would have to cease? What would end? What would you not do? So with that question, I'll leave you with that question and see how you practice with it for at least 20 minutes.
Non-reactivity is a possibility. It lives inside of you. Can you find it? Can you find the place of non-reactive awareness? Non-reactive presence.
the absence of reactivity is what gives room for the heart to feel free. So, the Eightfold Path, as the goal and the manifestation of realizing the Four Noble Truths, 
the Four Noble Truths, our perspective, new paradigm shift, a different way of seeing our experience and our life radically different than how we mostly usually see it, that opens to a very healthy way to live a life. It's not inconsequential to how we live, seeing the world through the perspective of the Four Noble Truths. So we can take some questions now, and those of you who'd like, uh, can you please use the Zoom hand. Um, I'm going to try to answer my, the questions kind of briefly, because I think maybe there's many of you who want to ask questions. And uh, maybe if it's possible to ask your questions briefly, that would be helpful as well. So um, I think the order in which they appear is uh, Eric is first, I think. Is that right? So, let me see. So go ahead, Eric. I don't hear anything. It's my, my not. Uh... There we go. Uh, I couldn't unmute for a moment. Um, thank you, Gil, so much for today. Uh, my question is, how do I best attenuate um, ill will just in everyday life? You know, it's just, you know, just comes up unbidden, just reacting to things, impatience, you know, and all that stuff. There's a difference between having it and acting on it. Do you act on it? No, I'm pretty good at not doing that. But it, you know, kind of spins me around internally. But uh, I'm pretty good with the restraint part. I like to think I am. Maybe I'm not as good as I think, but I think I'm pretty good at it. Yeah, ask a good friend of yours if it uh, leaks out or not. Yeah, good idea. But, but um, you might want to appreciate yourself for restraining, not letting it kind of come out, keeping it within you. That counts for a lot. And there's a, in this uh, heavily psychologized Western culture, we tend to judge ourselves so much by our psychology and uh, I think the Buddha was more interested in what we do than what we, you know, what's internally. I mean, the internally is important, but um, maybe not the occasion for a lot of judgment that we're bad, bad people or something. So just okay. celebrate your restraint if you, I'd encourage you to do that. And then um, one way, there's many things, many things to say about what you're asking, but in terms of the theme of today, uh, maybe you haven't suffered enough with your ill will. You might spend some time letting yourself feel, really feel the ouch of it, all the different ways that's an ouch. And when you have experienced it well enough, it might be pretty natural to not want to be involved there. You'll see something better. Yeah, I relate to that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And then I think it's Christy. Let's see, I can't, you have to unmute yourself. I don't think you can't, mute your, you don't know how to unmute yourself. Um, there, there's at the bottom. Uh, got, it, got it, got it, got it. No, I wasn't being allowed to, so. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so as you were talking about cessation, the word emptiness came through my mind quite frequently. Can you say a few words about the relationship between those two? Um, uh, tell me why you're asking the question. Well, as you were talking about cessation and what it looks like when, you know, things are just not there and everything falls away. That sounded very much to me like how at least one I don't know that I've ever understood emptiness, but that sounded to me like similar to emptiness. Uh -huh. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It could be. So the, uh, the emptiness that I was trying to emphasize today is not a total emptiness of everything, but the emptiness of uh, greed, hate, and delusion, emptiness of reactivity. And that's a little lower bar, but there are times when everything falls away. I mean, so thoroughly that there's, you know, just the world falls away from consciousness. And uh, some people will call that the empty space. And it's, it's very impactful because 
that kind of experience can show how far we can go with non-reactivity, how far we can really be free of all this. And that so much that when we come back from that kind of radical cessation, so much of the world we live in is uh, been constructed uh, by our reactivity, much more than we ever could have realized until we've had that experience. And to call that emptiness, this radical cessation, is one choice. Um, the philosophical Buddhists will tend to limit, I mean, in our tradition, that emptiness is, this, is the absence of self in anything and everything. And so we see the em- emptiness in that, in that absence. Uh, different people, especially if the question is being asked from a Mahayana point of view or certain Tibetan points of view, uh, it gets so much complicated about all the different definitions and meanings people have. Can we leave it at that? Yes, thank you. Thank you. And so then it's Fred. Um, I've read descriptions of people described as narcissists, and they seem to me to be polar opposites of enlightened Buddhists. Um, And I have an acquaintance who's gotten himself into a lot of trouble recently um, by being highly overreactive. And um, if at any point in his life he would be susceptible to... No, no, not till seven. What happened? I'm I'm still with you. Okay. Um, He might be susceptible now just because of the trouble he's in. Do you have a suggestion about how to introduce somebody to the Dharma? Uh, make it available to them. Well, I don't know if he's, I mean, if he has any spiritual inclinations, like something as big and as the Dharma, uh, it might be just uh, helping the person react, uh, uh, relax um, is uh, the first step. And, um, and, and one of the ways to help friend relax is to go for a walk with your friend and uh, try to understand your friend better. Ask, ask. I like to know better what's going on with you, and how are you, and you know what's the what's your background that maybe has led to your this reactive way that you are. And and uh, let's let's. I'd love to hear more about you know what what your situation is like. And just having someone interested like that might let something uh, relax inside. Maybe maybe the person's reactive because no one ever cared well enough for the person that, and they never had the, exp- the chance of sharing something deep within. And um, so maybe uh, being a good friend for the person, and then uh, maybe at some point you can say to your friend, you know, I've learned something about uh, just sitting quietly on park benches and breathing. And uh, looking at the at the at the trees, or looking at the squirrels, or something, and I find that it's so relaxing. You want to come and do it with me someday? I'll bring some tea. And then you know, and step by step, you bring your friend along. Great. Thank you very much, Brian. Hi, thank you very much for this. Uh, but I had some uh, some problems with when you said you should notice the cessation of thinking about something. Because, of course, then I would say, oh, I'm not thinking about X. And then I would, of course, start thinking about it again. So, yes. so how do you notice the absence of something without noticing, the, without being sucked into the presence of it? <laughs> Uh, just wait until it happens, and then don't don't mess with it. <laughs> um, I mean, I I I try that, but still, you know, I don't know. It's like, you know, I mean, 
you know, I'd say, oh, it's not there anymore. But then I would say, well, you know, what what was I thinking about? You know, that kind of thing. So. I think I think one of the best things to do when that happens mm-hmm. is is to be amused. <laughs> okay. Leave, leave it, keep it that simple. <laughs> okay. Right. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Miriam. Uh, this day was a very, um, uh, answered lots of questions. Uh, I didn't know they were questions before, but um, they still answered them. Um, when you spoke of uh, the imagery of a river and um, the beginnings and the endings and us to examine that, somehow I saw a parallel between the aging process. Oh. and Yeah, and uh, somehow what naturally sort of unfolds in this process of relinquishing and seeing more clearly what it is that is uh, incum- and the encumbrances to, to, to freedom. And somehow, as, as I age, I see that. Now, of course, it always helps that you, you've been a number of years with Buddhism. Yes. So that's, that's one thing. Then the other thing is I discovered, because I was a teacher for many years, that having... Um, uh, what's the word again you use that, that prevail? Reactivity. Um, behavior that you, um, at, uh, are, you meet uh, is the ground for uh, the potential for tremendous act- reactivity constantly. It was just an example, and it rose while you were giving this talk. Um, and so I found that bringing humor and goodwill was the, was the antidote. And so not only... Was that was that reactivity um, diminished considerably? But we got to a place of almost a love fest because of that. I, there were so many positive things that were brought today. I, I do want to say that um, it seems that the, the 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 four noble truths and the Satipatthana Sutta have uh, bring us to that golden place, that wonderful place of seeing more clearly. And so, and then the final thing is mindfulness, which is so central to Buddhism and um, cognitive behavioral therapy, all that live in the world is the gift that, that our Buddhism has brought. So that's, that's what I wanted to say. And I wanted to thank you so much for, for this special day. Well, thank you. Thank you, uh, Miriam. That was very gratifying, very satisfying to hear what you t- took in today. Thank you. Yeah, lots. Yeah, thank you. Susan. <laughs> um, we're having a, it's nice. I had a few friends over to my house. So we're watching you with a few other people. So really nice. Hi, Susan's friends. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. Uh, how you not on my screen? Okay, so... Um, a couple things. Uh, first of all, I really appreciate you talked in the Dharma talk. Uh, it was just a couple of years ago. I heard you speaking about nirvana, and um, you had mentioned that nirvana isn't about arriving; it's about what's fallen away, uh, the absence of. And so, I really appreciated that. That was the first bit. And um, again, I heard it again today. Right? It it isn't the full path is here, and it isn't about getting there. It's about what's sort of the absence of, so it can emerge. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you gave a talk on suffering and happiness. It was a Sunday talk. And there was something, there was a, a something came into my head and it reminds, again, here we are in suffering. And I think I'm being, I don't know if I just need reassurance or just, I would love your feedback about this, was that it occurred to me during the talk that if I remove Maybe it's just me. If I remove this idea of suffering, just even the term, right? All of a sudden, all that's occurring is phenomena. And then if if it's only phenomena, it's going to arise and it's going to fall. It just, it, it opened up this spaciousness, which meant, so, you know, the thing where you walk down the street and step the toe, there's pain, right? Right. If I'm not saying it's suffering, per se, then it's pain, 
all it is. I don't yeah. have to even go anywhere else. You've understood. It's fantastic, Susan. You've understood very well what I was trying to teach. Oh. And um, there's a way in which we live in the generalities of things. So we and we're in trouble partly because of those generalities. And sometimes, even though we use the word suffering a lot in Buddhism, um, if we live in the world of suffering, we, we too easily live in the world of general generalization. This big concept that we're under the weight of it. And uh, but if we can live in the immediate phenomena, take away the word, the concept of suffering, just be with the phenomena itself. It's a lot easier. Okay. Thank you so much. I thank you. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Jeffrey. Hello. Um, I had a question kind of about the nitty gritty of the, the third noble truth. So the cessation of suffering, um, Basically, what I, what I wanted to make sure I, I understood was the, you're using this idea of the ouch and the ah, is the cessation of suffering simply having that moment where you realize where you realize that you are being reactive, that you have an aversive, let's say like energy going on. Is it simply that moment of recognition or is it where you then change your focus to something else? Like for example, the breath, just curious yeah. if that's a distinction that matters. It's a good, good question. And so I'm not sure if I answer the full question, but the, uh, there are degrees to cessation. And, uh, and so simply recognizing you're being reactive in the recognition of that is a ceasing of reactivity. The reactivity itself might still exist, but there's a quality of, of non-reactivity, hopefully in the recognizing. So we're beginning to separate ourselves a little bit from the reactivity, step away and be free of it. That counts for a lot. Um, and then there's uh, bigger and bigger steps it might be that in the seeing of the reactivity, the reactivity vanishes. And then it's a different, qualitatively different experience of cessation that that reactivity has gone away. It could be, this is where the, the uh, classic exam, uh, teaching about craving is the cause of suffering comes into play because craving is often like a pivotal form of reactivity that's uh, the foundation for a lot of other reactivities. And if you see the disappearance of craving, you might find that the whole, the whole uh, citadel collapses because the foundation, foundation is gone. So, so, so it did all kinds of different degrees, but what you said was great. It's good. Thank you. So, Sherry. Hi. Um, I'm not sure if I could not hear Susan, so it might be a repeat, but I wanted um, a question around the statement that you talked about absence of reactivity frees the heart. So I'm interpreting um, and not avoiding, uh, well, I'm interpreting this to be not to avoid your reactivity that arises, but to avoid or that arises, you just notice it, but to not add the second bullet. Great. So, so this, um, uh, so it's a little bit, I repeat myself now that um, this is great what you're saying, what you're understanding. And but it's all a matter of degree or thoroughness. So not adding a second bullet is pretty good. It's fantastic. However, not having the first bullet is even better. And sometimes and sometimes you don't have to shoot anybody, including yourself. And so what I mean by that is so for the heart to really feel free there's actually no more reactivity whatsoever. There's no more arrows, no more bullets. If there's a complete feeling of, of safety there, 
and harmlessness that that is there. And so the heart has lots of space to relax and expand. The reactivity always limits us. Any reactivity we have is uh, uh, bounding us, limiting us, making us smaller, contracted. It kind of keeps us in bounds in a certain kind of way, tight. And, um, and uh, when the reactivity, and when we see that and don't add anything to it, that counts for a lot. That really makes space. But even better is when the reactivity is no longer there at all. And that's when the heart has its most freedom, the most breathing space. Well, that makes sense to me. But however, to not judge, I guess, yourself if reactivity comes up um, would be helpful. Not only is it helpful, it's crucial because you don't, otherwise you're just adding more bullets. Yes. And so, I mean, eventually getting to the non-reactive place is the ideal, but I'm guessing that takes more practice than I have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, and it's phenomenally useful and fun and interesting and profound to see reactivity and just leave it alone, step away and say, okay, we're not going anywhere, but I see you. And, but to have that freedom, just leave it alone is fantastic. And just keep doing that. And uh, what will happen is you'll slowly whittle away the edges of it and, um, and uh, eventually find, you will find a place of non-reactivity. I'm confident you will. Thank you. Mitra. Hi, Gil. At some point you said that there is um, pain that's not um, reactive or compounded by reactivity, and that's not part of the Four Noble Truths. Um, I feel like I want to say that's pure pain or something like that, and I'm not sure if I'm qualified to ask this question because I don't think I've ever been able to not add reactivity to my pure pain. But if I ever get there, what do I do with that pain? Ha ha, there's still pain, right? Yes. Well, in most circumstances, maybe there's nothing to do. No, no need to do anything about it. Maybe it's not so bad. So the fact that right now I feel the pains, um, I don't know, killing me is because I'm act- adding reactivity to it. So I want to be careful. I want to say yes, but I, yeah. do, I don't want to say yes because I want to be careful and not to make you feel bad about yourself or feel like, <clears throat> um, but chances are, yes, you're, you're a- adding a okay. little, something more, but more than the pure thing. So, you know, you, some of you know that my mother died a few months ago and I still have an ache, the pain uh, for it. But I have no problem with that ache or pain, the sorrow being there. Uh, I just take it for granted. Of course, that's going to be there, and um, I don't. I don't call that suffering. Though forty years ago, I might have called. The, uh, I might have felt some kind of ache, some kind of emotional pain, and I would have actually reacted to the emotional pain thinking, oh, I'm not supposed to be, this is bad, I'm supposed to be enlightened, I'm supposed to not have it. And I would have added all the stuff that made it worse. Now, I just kind of simple with it. And that simplicity, um, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, during part of today, I sat actually with a lot of hip pain sitting here with you. Sometimes I would change my posture because that's a wise thing to do. But I also didn't, didn't mind having the physical pain. It, I knew that it wasn't hurting myself. And uh, so that was okay. And I just kind of went merrily along my way. So it was just kind of, there was no reactivity to it. So it's handleable. It's a pain that you can handle. Yes, yes. And if, you can't ha- if I can't handle it, um, then, it, you know, um, I mean, I've had, uh, I've had non-reactive headaches and I decided you know I think I'm going to take an aspirin it just seemed like a reasonable thing to do uh, so so there's ways of taking care of ourselves this is not this is not 
that kind of masochism, you know, it's just experience pain for pain's sake to be non-reactive. But when you can't do anything about it, then we've built up the capacity to be present for things that are difficult with non-reactivity. And that, you know, you never know when you're going to need it. Thank you. Thank you, Mitra. So then, Seth. Hi, uh, thank you very much for this day. Um, My question, I think, is similar to the one that uh, two questions ago and even earlier, which is, after all this sort of how not to get with this idea that if I can step out of reactivity, I can have an ah moment. So how to not then have an aversion to my own reactivity or a clinging for an ah moment. Um, I think one of my big neurosis and recurring demons in life is this notion that expertise at playing the piano or learning more literature will bring me more joy and anything that blocks me from that, or I'm constantly planning, how can I do that? And then as I meditate, I realize I'm planning and planning and planning. And then I get angry at myself for having these notions yeah, and angry for the thirst. So I have an aversion to my own thirst and, and it spins onward. So it sounds like you have, you're driven by these kinds of ideas. Yeah. And, uh, if you were going to point to some place in your body that's leading the drive, where in your body is that? Um, I'm not sure right now <laughs> with all these people listening, but in the past when I have meditate on it, I feel a thing kind of next to my sternum, this sort of tightness. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so what yeah, so then the question is that I'd like interested in is if you could relax into your belly and lead with your belly, what changes mm-hmm. for you? Okay, I'll try that. Great. Thank you. It's a great question. I hope that my simple answer is profound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I also appreciate many of the things you said, including who are you when you don't use thoughts to answer que- the question? Yeah. So realizing that these are all fingers pointing at the moon or something like that. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. So then we have uh, Nirav. Hi. Um, I just wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you. Um I came upon the Dharma um, through a different spiritual practice. Um, uh, suffice it to say that I had had enough uh, dukkha and uh, I needed something. I needed a solution. And I have uh, found that um, in Buddhism. And even though we've never met in person, um, you've been an integral part of my spiritual journey um, as a, uh, has um, all the Dharma talks that I listen to on Audio Dharma, but especially yours. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you. Well, thank you very much. Very nice to be with you and mm-hmm. have you along. Thank you. And then Jill. Hi, Jill. It was, real, it was really nice to meet your son. And, uh, and uh, uh, maybe apologize him to, for me that I didn't have more time to spend with him when he was here. No, but it was, okay. it was very nice to meet with him. Yeah, he really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to say today was the first time I think that I saw my reactivity as if from the outside without actually experiencing the emotion of it. Um, and that felt really good. Uh, I think one question I have is... Um, how do you know that you're not um, repressing the emotion by not reacting to it? Uh, sometimes uh-huh. I'm that, that I might be doing that. And... Uh-huh. That's interesting. Um, I think it's a very valid and important question. But I, it's because you have a mindfulness practice, because you just learned learning how to step away and 
and be aware without being in the reactivity, um, I would encourage you, don't worry about it, the question. Just keep doing your mindfulness practice and you'll learn for yourself when the time is right. Yeah. Is that okay with you? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Don't worry. Just keep practicing. (laughs) (laughs) It seems to be working anyway. (laughs) Great. Great, Jill. Nice to see you. And then we have John. Hopefully the hands will stop going up now because we, I'd like to bring it to a close. Finish with the three that are there. So, John, I can't hear you. You have to, you have to unmute yourself. Yes, I wanted to thank you for uh, trying to make things simple for all of us, especially for myself. And, uh, and I wanted to ask you a question about how does one discern between a healthy appetite for say food or water or, you know, whatever, and what's maybe unhealthy, like my desire to have a glass of wine, um, which I don't know that that's unhealthy, but how do you discern between a healthy desire for sustenance versus an unhealthy one? If you can, uh, this is where mindfulness is really important. If you can feel where the desire is coming from, is a desire coming from a neediness? Is it coming from a feeling of loneliness or feeling of uh, discomfort? Is there some kind of something that feels off, like uh, in the in the desire for something, mm-hmm. or does it feel and and um, uh, and if it's not something you need to have, like you don't need to have wine, but you need to have food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if it's something you don't need to have can you put the desire down easily? And if you can't put the desire down easily, then maybe you're caught in it. Yeah. But if you can, you know, it's easy come, easy go, wine, no wine, you know, it's all the same. <laughs> um, then, pro- you know, then, you know, maybe the desire is simple and kind of clean desire. And, um, but if uh, you kind of feel like, you know, Things are going to go, you really need to have it now. You know, you're probably caught. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Great, thank you. Mm-hmm. Sarah? Hi there, Gil. Um, and these are great questions and great answers. I'm getting so much out of this uh, session. And I just wanted to let you know that this this whole day has been a real game changer for me and my personal practice. And um, it, it just, it was very experiential in the reactivity piece of it. I guess I did never, I never really had that visceral contact with uh, the, the beginnings of reactivity and the cessation of reactivity and what a relief I felt today on some things that were bringing me extreme anxiety, I guess. Um, and this, it really happened just in today's retreat. So that is just, I'm so grateful to you for that. Um, my question is, uh, in the, in this, you know, the second arrow of, you know, there, there are things that I, that I need to make amends for. I do a lot of work with recovery Dharma work and, um, there are things I do need to make amends for things that I have done that I need to do make right in my mm-hmm. life and and i guess it, it just it, that if i don't have that second arrow there's a part of me that feels like my moral compass will be off oh because i feel like in order for me to know that that's wrong and to make a right action and to correct it I have to, I have to suffer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 I see. And some, some related to that is some people feel like, um, yes, unless I feel angry, unless I feel despair, unless I feel terrible, um, then I'm part of the problem or I'm not doing it right. And, uh, and there lots of people are despairing and angry and you're supposed to participate in it and show them how <laughs> upset you are and how, dif- how guilty you feel. And without that, you're, you're, you're even worse. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. But uh, this is a problem for uh, 
people who practice and beginning to letting go of the second arrows, that it's okay not to, it's okay not to get angry or despairing, or it's okay not to feel guilty. We can know that we need to make amends. We can know we did something wrong. We don't have to carry it as a, you know, as a, you know, as uh, inflicting wounds on ourselves through guilt. So, so it's hard. This is a hard thing to do because what people expect of us. But if you realize that you're responding to expectations from others, maybe that uh, will help lighten the load or keep you a little bit protected from succumbing to it. Mm. Ah, yes. Yes, that makes sense. Yes, definitely. And then, and then, and, and then you can also know, you know that, it, that there is these expectations on you mm-hmm. from others. And rather than just blowing people off because of it, uh, you might take care of them, though, and say, say, you know, that's, um, you, you know, stress to them. You know, I, this is really important for me. I really care about this. This has had a big impact on me, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm concerned about this, or I care about this, or I love you, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that they know that you do care. You have mm-hmm. to. The fact that you're able to stay calm <laughs> with it all um, is completely confusing for some people. <laughs> what? What is this calm? Are you? <laughs> Are you taking too much lithium? Because <laughs> society is based on reactivity. Yeah, exactly. But it, but it, so you have to reassure people sometimes. Thank you, and I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Sarah. So then, uh, maybe the last one, Linda. And if you can move your camera slightly, it'd be lovely to be able to see. Yes, your face. Thank you. Hi. Um, my question. Well, first of all, the word reactivity was really helpful for me instead of suffering. Um, it made me understand it more than I had ever understood it before. What about crying? Is that reactive crying? It, oh, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes you just, try not to. Sometimes, sometimes there's just a natural release. It's completely appropriate. It's no reactivity. It's just kind of the movement of the heart. And uh, sometimes it's a lot of reactivity involved. And uh, how to discern the difference is interesting. But um, uh, one interesting way to see the difference, if you have the interest to do this, is to assume, to keep a good posture when you're crying. Uh, don't collapse. If you collapse and put your head, hand over your eyes, and you know, then maybe you're more likely participating and, and, and reacting along with it. But if you can then relax, sit upright in a relaxed way and not collapse with it and let the tears flow, uh, then maybe it's just uh, what needs to happen. Very helpful. Thank you. Great. So, everyone, it's time to end. And I want to thank you all for being part of this. And, and uh, it's quite... Uh, I think it's quite wonderful that uh, you're interested in these topics and exploring them and practicing with them. I don't take it for granted that there are, when there are people in the world who want to do this. And I want to thank you very, very much for being part of this. I, uh, beforehand, before this started, I looked through the roster of the people who are here and looked at every name and the ones, some people I know, some people I know by name, some, some of you I don't know. I didn't recognize you, but I appreciated somehow the name. Every name was like, oh, look at that. I, so, and uh, a couple of times I looked through the tiles and I was delighted to, to see who was here and you all. So just my way of, of um, sharing how happy I am to have done this with you today. So thank you. And May, what we've done here is a lot of us here And if we could um, somehow do something good for the world because we were here today, inspire us to make the world a little bit better from someone else, then it kind of will spread to so many places from us out into the world. And if you want to say uh, goodbye uh, out loud in a cacophony of uh, farewells, I think the managers are going to turn off the the mute for you all and you see you can unmute yourself and say goodbye
Goodbye. Bye. 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 B